Well, good morning. Uh, I want to welcome anybody that's watching online. We're glad that you're here today. Thank you for coming. Uh, you know, when you come in, you probably notice there's like some cookout stuff going on. There's a car wash out back. You say, well, what's all that about? Well, we're right, raising money for missions. We do that typically in the summertime. And this weekend, we're raising money for people that are going on our Appalachian mission trip to West Virginia. And so uh, shout out to those guys. Be sure to check that out on your way out today. Well, Brian's Safe House is one of the homes that we at CVC have partnered with over the years. Uh, Leon and Danita Brush lead this home. It was founded after the sad loss of their son due to uh, drug addiction. And they are here with us today, I think somewhere. Uh, and they want to say thank you for our support. So there they are over there. Can you welcome them? Yeah. Soldiers on the front lines trying to help people with addiction and stuff like that. So they'll be out in the foyer on the way out. So I encourage you to stop by and welcome them and say hi to them and, and encourage them. And we're grateful for the partnership that we have with you guys. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father, we pray that you would help us to see truths in your word in a new, fresh way today. We need fresh bread from heaven. We need fresh fuel for our faith. We need more love and hope and joy and peace in our lives. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and minister to us and teach us and change us. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you've died. And you're standing before God. And he says, how do you plead, innocent or guilty? And you've got this scarf on that represents your life, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done. Some of it's good, some of it not so good. And you're standing before God and you go, I might be able to fool some people around me. I might even be able to fool myself, but I can't fool God. How do I plead, innocent or guilty? I've got to plead guilty because my life is stained by sin. I haven't always pleased God. I've been a rebel. I've violated every commandment. I'm not as bad as the guy next door. But my comparison is with the holiness and righteousness of God. And God says, you're right, you are guilty. And I'm a holy God and I must punish sin. I'm not a righteous judge if I don't punish sin. So he sends a big angel who escorts you over, and there's a big cross on the ground, and they stretch you out onto this cross. They're about to nail you to the cross, your hands and your feet, and all of a sudden you hear, wait a minute, hold it. I'm not only a just judge who must punish sin, but I'm also a loving father who wants to provide you with a way back to me. So I'm going to send my son God the Son, Jesus, to come over. So Jesus comes over, and he looks at you there on the cross. And he says, get up off that cross. We're going to swap places. And I want to take your sin on myself. And so your sin is given to Jesus. He lays down on the cross. They nail his hands. They nail his feet. And he dies on the cross in your place for your sin. But that's not all. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his clothes. And so now you stand before God 
And he says, how do you plead, innocent or guilty? And you go, well, I'm still guilty, but my sin, my crimes have been paid for by Christ. And now I'm dressed in the righteousness of Christ. And God the Father says, I recognize those clothes. You can come into heaven, not because of what you've done, but you can come into heaven because of what my son has done and because you're clothed in his righteousness. This is an amazing truth. And this ought to change everything. This, this matters. You say, well, why? Well, this past week you lost your temper at home and you said some things to a family member that you wish you could take back. Or this week you stretched the truth and you verbally painted the picture of a colleague that you really um, wanted to make her look bad and yourself look good. Or this week in order to make yourself feel better, you bought something that you really couldn't afford and you put your family further into debt. And so here you are now, feeling guilt, feeling shame, but you've put on a brave face. All those kinds of things and more things have created this load of guilt and shame in your life, and it's weighing you down, it's stealing your joy, and now here you are at church, and you're hoping to find a little forgiveness and to find a little bit of the favor of God. You're hoping to find some peace with God. You want to be right with God. You're saying, well, maybe if I go to church and say some prayers and read my Bible, maybe if I do more, maybe if I try harder, then I'm going to be okay with God, and God will be okay with me. Listen, there's a better way. We don't have to wallow in our guilt. We don't have to dig ourselves out of a hole of shame. See, we can have peace with God through our faith in Jesus Christ because He's paid for our sins and clothed us in His righteousness. Listen, the weakest faith in the strongest Savior changes the greatest sinner. And makes him right with God. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 today as we continue our series, Right with God. And we've learned in weeks past, from Romans 1, 2, and 3, that no one will ever be able to make himself right with God on his own efforts. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is holy. And we've learned that He must pour out His wrath on everyone who has lived unrighteously because He is holy. That means we've got a big problem. How can sinful, rebellious people like us ever be made right with a holy, righteous God? Pastor Chad taught us last week that God's come up with a plan. I will pour out the wrath that you deserve on my son Jesus. And that's propitiation. He says, this will satisfy my justice and this will justify you. And you will be right with me. And Chad said to us last week, God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So this is how God is both just, punishing sin, and justifier, saving sinners like me and you. So we're not made right with God by our works, by our good deeds. We are made right with God by receiving a gift, by putting our faith in Jesus, the one who is both just and justifier. And when we do that, all of our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Now, the criticism that people have about this whole idea of being saved by grace through faith alone and not by your works is this. If all my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, then you know what? I can live like hell. I can live badly. How I live doesn't matter. 
Paul, the guy who wrote this, you're just giving people an excuse to sin. It can't be just grace through faith that saves us. So the Jewish religious leaders were accusing Paul, and they're saying to Paul, you're just giving everybody a license to sin. And Paul anticipates this objection at the very end of chapter 3, where he asks a question. If we emphasize the fact that we're saved by grace through faith, does this mean that we can forget the law of God, that we can forget about being obedient to God? The answer is, of course not. So what Paul is doing here in chapter 4 is he's talking about how our faith, our faith makes us actually righteous, not only in position, but also in practice in our daily lives. And here's what he does. He uses the founding father of the Jewish faith, Abraham, to make his point. So let's look at it. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, by being a good religious boy, doing his duties, doing more, trying harder, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, if you could be saved by works, then you would pat yourself on the back and say, what a good little boy am I, what a good little girl am I. You'd be bragging about yourself. But you're not going to be able to do that before God. You can't boast before God. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Now he's quoting from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Here's what the Scriptures say about Abraham. Abraham believed God, exercised faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What made him right with God? Faith. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you go to the job, you do your job, you earn a paycheck. He says that's not the way it works with God, with salvation, with grace and faith. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, if you try to work your way to heaven you got to understand something about your righteousness. All your righteousness is like filthy rags to God. It can't measure up. Now, we need to define some terms here. First, we need to define justification. Second, we need to define what it means to be counted as righteous. So I looked this up in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Here's justification. What are the elements of justification? There are two. Forgiveness of sins and declaring or approving as righteous. Two parts to justification. Forgiveness and righteousness. So how can a guilty sinner be made right with a holy God? Well, God forgives us, right? It's His job, right? And when He forgives us, we're good to go. Well, not so fast. See, forgiveness only solves part of our problem. Forgiveness only makes us morally neutral before God. It doesn't give us favor with God. You've got to have more than just moral neutrality. We have to have a positive righteousness with God. My sins have been paid for by Christ, but that's not enough. I need to have the righteousness of Christ to go to heaven. You know, uh, sometimes people uh, say, they try to help us understand this idea of justification. And they say, justification is being made just as if I'd never sinned. And that's a cute way to communicate the idea. I've even used that before. Maybe you have too. But it doesn't really do justice to this truth. Uh, The idea falls short at best, and it misleads at worst. 
This definition of justification, you've been made just as if you'd never sinned, never points to the fact that Christ's righteousness must be attributed or applied to our account. I mean, to say it the right way, it would sound like this. Justification is being made just as if I'd always been as righteous as Jesus. That's the idea here. But more significantly, it's impossible for us to be made just as if we'd never sinned because we have sinned a lot. And we will always be conscious of the fact that we have sinned and that we are not innocent people. And we will know for all eternity we are guilty people, but we have this incredible, gracious, loving, powerful, merciful God who has not only forgiven us, but who has given us righteousness by a gracious act. And because we will see that we're forgiven sinners and we've been clothed in his righteousness, our gratitude for and our joy in and our worship of our gracious God will be even greater. So don't just focus on the fact that you're forgiven. Focus on the fact also that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's justification. Another quote from J.I. Packer. Justification is God's judicial act of pardoning the guilty sinner and accepting him as righteous. Two parts, forgiveness and righteousness. Okay, that hopefully helps us understand justification a little better. But what about this phrase, counted as righteous? What does it mean? Well, some theologians call counted as righteous, they call it imputed righteousness. Say it with me imputed righteousness. Okay, that wasn't good. Try it again. Imputed righteousness. Probably the first time some of you have ever said that, okay? But this is a very, very, very important theological concept. Imputed righteousness. What is it? This is the declaration by God that all the righteous acts of Christ are credited to us reckoned to be ours and put to our account. Therefore, we're accepted as righteous in God's sight. This is what makes us right with God. Imputed righteousness. You're declared righteous by God. And this is news that we need to hear. You say, well, why? What difference does it make? Well, last week, you checked your emails, you read the news online, but nobody's home. And all of a sudden, you found yourself surfing the web for an hour and a half, looking at glittering images that fueled your lust. So now you've your guilt and shame. They're great. And you're here at church. And you are trying to make things right with God. And God says this, you can't make things right with me. Instead, I have made things right with you by justifying you by grace through faith. Listen, you've been lusting, you need to know something. You are forgiven already, and you are already clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, God says, I invite you to live up to who you are. This is the way this works. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate this. Okay, let's let this little uh, stick figure here represent you. And in order for you to go to heaven, you have to have a ticket. And you know what the ticket needs to say? This is what it needs to say. Righteousness. I did everything God wanted me to do. 
100%, without fail. So I have a ticket of righteousness. And if you got a ticket of righteousness, then you're on your way to heaven. Nobody's got that ticket, right? The first time you said no to your mama when you were two, you weren't righteous anymore, okay? First time you lied to somebody at school to make yourself look good, you weren't righteous anymore. And on and on and on it goes. So here's the ticket we have. Unrighteousness. That's our ticket. All right? means we're in trouble. However, I want to draw a cross here to represent Christ. And then what kind of a ticket does he have? (laughs) He has the ticket of righteousness. Because the Bible says that he was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. In fact, he was on trial for his life. They could find no fault in him. Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life. 100% righteous. Always pleased the Father. Always honored God. Served people. Loved people. He never sinned. Okay? Now, this is the amazing thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, he, it's talking about God the Father, made him, it's talking about Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin in our behalf. Do you understand what that's about? Here, here's what happened. When Christ came into this pla- onto this planet and he hung and died on a cross, what he was doing is he was dying for all of our unrighteousness. But that's not all that happened there. He also gave us his ticket. He takes our unrighteousness, he gives us his righteousness, and we stand before God, right with God, accepted. This is how we go to heaven. And this is not legal fiction. In other words, God has declared it to be true. Whether you feel like it's true or not, because some people are here today and you've fouled up so much last week that you don't think this is really true. It's true whether you feel different or not. Uh, you know, uh, last weekend I performed a wedding ceremony. And uh, I stood in front of Sam and Kelly and I said, you know, as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, with all the authority that the state of Ohio has given me, and because you've given and received rings and you've exchanged vows, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now, I don't know if they felt any different after that or not. He probably felt a little better because he got to kiss his bride, but I declared something as a pastor, as a minister, and things radically changed for those two, whether they feel any different or not. Listen. God the Father has declared something to be true about you. You're forgiven, and you've been given the righteousness of Christ. It's true. Now, live up to who you are. Live up to who you are. This is the way this works. The gospel is good news. He, the Father, made him, the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin in our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Now, how do you get this forgiveness? How do you get this imputed righteousness? Do you get it by works, by being a good boy or a good girl, by trying harder, by being religious? Do you get it by going to church or saying your prayers or getting baptized? Do you get it by performing the sacraments and following the rules and rituals and regulations of religion? No, no, no. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 9. 
Last part of verse 9. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. Okay. I just say the word circumcision a lot more than I usually say the word circumcision. <laughs> you've probably heard it more than you've ever heard it, right? What's going on here? <laughs> well, circumcision. For the Jewish people, it has a deeply spiritual significance. It's a surgery. It's the cutting off the foreskin that is performed on Jewish males to signify that they've been set apart for God. They're part of God's covenant family. So it's meant to be an outward symbol of an inward reality. So circumcision is a religious ritual. It's a work that someone does... Uh, in order to be right with God. That's what the Jewish religious leaders had turned this into. They were saying that if you're going to be right with God, you've got to be circumcised. So if you're a Gentile and you've never been circumcised, in order for you to be truly saved, in order for you to have your ticket punched to go to heaven, you've got to get circumcised just like Jews are circumcised. And what they're really saying is that we are justified by fulfilling our religious duties. And Paul is saying to these Jewish religious leaders, not true. And he uses the Jewish Old Testament to make his point. And here's his logic. In Genesis 15, Abraham believes God and God says, you're righteous. And then in Genesis 17, the covenant of circumcision was made with Abraham and his descendants. So the idea here is that Abraham was justified before God, right, with God, before he was circumcised. He didn't have to keep the rules and regulations and rituals to make him right with God because all he had was faith in a promise-keeping God. So he's not saved by his works. He believed God, and that made him righteous. And what God did is he takes then the future work of Jesus on the cross, and then he applies it to Abraham's life way back in the Old Testament. Today, some might say, if you're going to be right with God, you've got to be baptized. Or some of us think, wow, if I get baptized, then I'm going to be right with God. Or some people say, hey, to be right with God, you've got to be a member of this particular church, this particular denomination. Some people say, hey, to be right with God, you've got to follow the rules and regulations and the rituals of a particular church, a religion. Or you've got to make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, or you've got to keep the law, and if you're good enough, if you try hard enough, then maybe, just maybe, you can be right with God. And the whole message of Romans chapter 4 says, not true. Works didn't make Abraham right with God, and works won't make us right with God. It is grace through faith that makes us right with God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Paul says in Philippians 3, May I be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's faith 
not works, that made Paul and Abraham right with God, and it's our faith, not works, that makes us right with God. Now, saving faith and justifying faith changes us. Some people say they have faith, but their life never changes. So if you've got saving faith and justifying faith, it will change your life. Listen, the weakest faith in the strongest Savior changes the greatest sinner and makes him right with God. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate this another way. So I've got a, a circle here. And let's say this circle represents your life, okay? What's in your life? Well, if we're honest, we all have these minus signs. We all have these negatives. We have all these marks against us. We have all these sins. We have violated the law of God. We stand before him guilty because our lives are filled with sin. But when we put our faith in Jesus, when we turn from our sin and we trust in Christ and we make him the Lord of our lives, then an amazing thing happens. We are totally, fully forgiven of our sins. We got sins no more. They are wiped away. And we are clean before God. The slate's clean. But that's not all that happens. Because when we put our faith in Him and we are justified, not only are we forgiven, but we get all of these pluses in our lives. You say, well, what are the pluses? Every good thing that Jesus did, every act of obedience that he performed, every act of service, every act of love, when he healed a person, when he raised a person from the dead, when he perfectly obeyed the Father, when he went and prayed, when he worshiped, all of that is credited to your account. That's what imputed righteousness is. This is why we don't need to wallow around in guilt and shame. I mean, I just wish that I could grab everybody here and pin you against the wall and shake you and say, do you get this? This is an amazing truth. When God sees you, he doesn't see a dirty, no good, rotten sinner. That's who we are, but that's not what he sees. What does he see? The righteousness of Christ. And we need to live up into that. We need to believe that more. Look at Romans 4.22. His faith, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Romans 15.6 wasn't just for Abraham, but for ours also. It was for us. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Put your name in there. This wasn't just for Abraham. This was for me. It will be counted to me if I believe in him. He was delivered up for my trespasses and raised for my justification. Abraham's not only the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of anyone and everyone who comes to God by grace through faith. Life's been hard for you lately. You wanted to numb the pain. So this past week you drank too much after you promised, I'm never going to get drunk again. And here you are today and you're trying to patch things up with God. And God is saying to you, hey, listen, I don't condone what you did, but I don't condemn who you are. 
Have you put your faith in Christ? Well, if so, you are forgiven and you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God is saying to you, therefore, you and I are no longer at war. You and I are at peace. You can't make things okay with me because I've already made things okay with you. Understand this? And this leads right into chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, what's the big deal about all this stuff in Romans chapter 4? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 4 gives us the reasons why Romans 5.1 is true, why you have peace with God. Romans 4 sets up Romans 5.1. Because we are justified, because we're forgiven and, and we, we have imputed righteousness, we have, have, have peace with God. It's not, you might have peace with God, or even we will have peace with God. We do have peace with God. Now, there's something called the peace of God. And I put something online on Facebook, and I said, hey, what disturbs your peace with God? And pretty much everybody answered it like this. Worry, anxiety, not trusting God, and so on and so forth. And what they're talking about really is this internal subjective peace of God. That wasn't the question. What disturbs your peace with God? And one person wrote this. Nothing. That guy gets it. Nothing ought to disturb our peace with God because it's external and objective. It's something that God does, not something that we do. Suppose you own a house. You owe $150,000 on the house. Now, the housing market stalls and the prices on the homes drop. And you can only sell your house for $100,000. Your house isn't even worth as much as you owe. And then a big storm comes through your neighborhood and it damages your roof, it damages your windows, it floods your basement. You have no insurance. To repair all of the damage, you need another $100,000. On top of all that, you lose your job. Now you can't make house payments. So you decide to throw yourself on the mercy of the bank who owns the title to your house. So you make an appointment because you want to negotiate some favorable terms for payment. So the banker says, wow, <laughs> I see you're in big trouble. There's nothing you can do. You're going to lose your house. But wait, what's your name again? Let me double check my records. You know what? Someone came into the bank last week, they heard about your troubles, and a man paid your mortgage, all $150,000. Plus, he deposited into your bank account an extra $100,000 to fix everything. And you're stunned. You can't believe it. Your debt has been paid, you are no longer in the red, and you don't owe anymore. And then the banker says, but that's not all. This stranger, this friend, this someone also wrote you an additional check. I want you to look at this bank statement. He has deposited $1 million in your bank account. You are rich. This is what happened to us. We were hopelessly in debt to God and we had no way to pay. But because of Christ's great love for us, our sin debt has been erased and the wealth of Christ has been deposited into our account. Saved by grace through faith. 
Now, does this mean you can forget about the law of God, that you can forget about being obedient to God? By no means. Because if someone paid off your mortgage, if they fixed your house and then gave you a million dollars, how would you treat them? I mean, you can't pay them back. You just got to receive it as a gift. But what would be your attitude? What would be your posture to that person? You know, are you going to drive by and egg their house? Are you going to get out and key their car? I don't think so. You'd knock on the door and say, hey, can I mow your grass? Can I wax your car? You're going to want to express your gratitude. You want to honor them. You want to please them. Now, now you understand this truth about justification, forgiveness of sins, imputed righteousness by grace through faith and not works, it actually ought to fuel our gratitude and our obedience to God. Why? I am amazed that I received such a great salvation. Being saved by grace through faith doesn't make us want to ignore God or disobey God. It makes us want to serve Him and please Him and love Him. Listen, this truth will help you forgive yourself when you sin. This truth will help you go to God in prayer. Some of us, we go to God in prayer and we think, well, I'm not worthy. God won't listen to me. Listen, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You deserve death and hell. Yes, no question about it. But God has declared something to be true about you. Totally forgiven, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You can go to the presence of God just like Jesus can. You ought to pray like crazy because you're accepted in Christ. This truth ought to help us worship. When it's time to sing, listen, if I was a worship pastor, I'd be wanting everybody to get in on this because why wouldn't I want to sing praises to the one who's forgiven me and given me his righteousness? This truth will help you share your faith with other people. Sometime this week, I want you to ask a friend or a family member uh, this. You know, say, I, I've learned something new at church this week. Uh, do you know what imputed righteousness is? <laughs> I already tried this out. I tried it with one of my mom's caregivers. Uh, I asked her, do you know what imputed righteousness is? No. What do you think they're going to say when you ask that question? No. they're going to. And then you say, may I share with you very simply what it is? And then you pick an illustration. Use the scarf illustration. Use the ticket illustration. Use the circle illustration. But somehow just simply explain to them, and it may be a brand new way for you to have a new life, 1024 conversation. Finally, this truth will make any sinner right with God. Some of you are thinking, hey, Rick, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. I'm too far gone. It's too late for me. My sin's too deep. My shame is too strong. My guilt's piled too high. Nothing can change me. Nothing can save me. I'll never be able to do good enough. I'll never be able to turn over a new leaf. Listen, you're not saved by your works. You're not saved because you're good. You're not saved because you turn over a new leaf. We're all sinners. All of our righteous like filthy rags to God. We deserve death and hell. But what saves us? Who saves us? Is Christ. You don't even need a big or a strong faith to save you. It's not your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. It's Jesus who saves. That's why I say the weakest faith and the strongest Savior can change the greatest sinner and make him right with God. You know, in your program and on the screen, there's a prayer that you could pray if you want to give yourself to Christ. I, I confess that I'm a guilty sinner. I deserve your wrath. But because of your great grace, I believe you have poured out the wrath I deserve. On to Jesus. Today, I'm trusting in Jesus alone as my Savior. Thank you for my forgiveness, for Christ dying on the cross in my place for my sins. Thank you for clothing me in Christ's righteousness. Jesus has made me right with God. Now help me to live up to who I am in Christ. 
If you're here and, and you've not made that commitment, I encourage you to pray. You, the words aren't important. What's important is that you turn and trust Christ. And God will declare you forgiven, and he will clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. Why wouldn't you want in on a deal like that? And if you pray that prayer, if you turn and trust Christ, in your program is a box you can check, put it in the offering basket so we can help you grow in your understanding of this faith. You've been invited to the celebration at a king's palace. There's a party in the king's house. But all you have are rags to wear. Your rags make a statement that what you really deserve is prison. Why? Because your clothes, your rags, are just outward symbol, symbols of the inward reality of who you are. You can't go to the king's celebration dressed in rags. You do not qualify to enter. You've dishonored the king. You've rebelled against him. And you will be sentenced to a lifetime of imprisonment. But on your way to the prison... A stranger intercepts your route and he stops the guards. And he says this, take me instead. I will suffer in his place. I will go to prison for him. And the stranger looks in your eyes and he says, give me your rags. I will wear your clothes and you can take my robe. It's yours here. Wear my robe. And his robe is spotless and flawless and beautiful, and you are amazed and humbled and speechless. And now you make your way back to the king's palace, and you enter the king's court, and the king gives you an audience, and he says, Who are you? And you reply, I'm no one, my lord. I am a rebel. I'm a lawbreaker. I was on my way to prison dressed in dirty rags that reflected my rebellious heart. And the king nods knowingly, and he's motioning for the guards to take you away. But then he looks at you and he says, hey, wait, I recognize that robe. Where'd you get it? And you say, a stranger, the most kind, the most gracious, the most generous, and the most loving one gave me this robe. And the king smiles and says, it's my son's robe. If my son loves you, I do too. You are welcome to stay with me here forevermore. You are no longer my enemy we are at peace. Welcome to the party, my friend. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace this truth. Because this will change everything. Father, I pray for people here today who, who have fallen this past week or month in a way that bring shame and guilt to their lives. God, I pray that they would understand that you don't condone it, but you don't condemn them. Because you have sent a Savior, Jesus, to forgive us and clothe us, dressed in His righteousness alone. Faultless, we stand before the throne. And may this knowledge fuel holiness and obedience and worship and praise and prayer and witnessing because we have the greatest news ever. Let us share it. Let us wallow in it. And let us worship the one who is both just 
and justifier. In Jesus' name.